So today we're, we're discussing the third portion of the Apostles' Creed. We're in the middle of a series, as you may know, uh, on the Apostles' Creed. The thing that we said this morning after we were done singing as part of our worship. Worship isn't just music. And we, we said the Apostles' Creed. For many of us, we have grown up not saying a creed in church. And so the idea of saying a creed can be foreign. And, you know, it's, it's never beneficial to adopt t- tradition or things that people do just because they do them. Um, it, it's not helpful to you. It doesn't provide a source of life. And so when, you, when we looked at what we wanted to teach the church over the last few months, um, I, it, I had it in my heart to do this series. And the point of this series, again, is that the foundations of our faith are found in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, the other creeds of the churches. And by covering in a, in a systematic way the, the things that the creeds teach, we can um, find ourselves in a place with deep, lasting communion with God um, over the simple foundational truths that are found in these creeds. Uh, last week, we had talked about how Jesus was not only Jesus, but also what the, what the word Christ meant, that he was the Messiah, as well as the Son of God. And we looked at how the entire um, testimony of the gospel was affirming these two roles of Jesus being both the Son of Man, that is human, and the Son of God. He was both the Messiah, that is the one to redeem his people from their sins, as well as Emmanuel, God in their midst. We won't cover all of that again today, but I want you to just highlight um, this part of Luke uh, when Gabriel says in this verse, um, the Holy Spirit will come upon you so that the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. We looked at how it was a there were two separate unique declarations or affirmations that Jesus was both the Messiah, that is the anointed person to sit on the throne of David, fulfilling the Davidic covenant, the covenant that, that Yahweh had made to David that upon your throne, I would establish a ruler who would exist forever. And then there's this other idea of Emmanuel, that is God being in the midst of his people. And Gabriel, again, that was the, that was the point of last week's sermon. And um, moving on from that, but retouching it, again, Gabriel says he will be the Messiah. In verse 32, he will be the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him or seat him on the throne of his father David. So so Jesus is going to be the fulfillment. He is going to be the reigning king. And then also because of what has happened, for that reason, he shall be called the Son of God. We're going to look at that in focus today. So we turn our attention to the third phrase in the Apostles' Creed. That phrase is, um, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Those are the two ideas we're going to talk about. This idea that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin. Two separate but complementary ideas. Um, we, when, when we say who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, we we are saying that about Jesus. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So this isn't just talking about anybody, this is talking about Jesus. Um, we have to be clear on that. Uh, we're going to cover four things today, or four elements of this teaching. We're going to look at something that the Nicene Creed adds to this phrase. Be- it, it comes before. We'll look at that. We'll look at what the virgin birth means and what we what we mean when we say the virgin birth, that phrase, that term, what it implies. We're going to look at some people who have gone into heresy denying the virgin birth, and then we're also going to look at the Incarnation and what that means for us. The Nicene Creed follows the structure of the Apostles' Creed, but it adds, where, where appropriate, it adds certain phrases um, to enrich and enlarge the application of, of the Apostles' Creed. So the purpose of the creeds, as we talked about in the introduction, is to profess our faith to the world. That is, when an unbeliever comes into a church service, or if they ask you what you believe, you can, in a short and concise way, tell them, this is what I believe as a Christian. Not only does it inform the world of what we believe, but it also is a teaching mechanism that the church has used to help new believers understand the principles of the faith, the things about which there can be no argument, although there may be discussion and interpretation and learning about. But these are the things which, for all time, the church has said, if you're going to be within the Orthodox faith, it's necessary that you believe these things. So before speaking about the Incarnation, and the uh, virgin birth, the Nicene Creed adds this phrase, uh, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And then right after that, it comes, who for us men or for, for mankind and for our salvation came down from heaven. So this teaches us that the reason God in the person of Jesus Christ came down from heaven was for salvation and for us, or, or that is, you could say, on our behalf. That is, Jesus Christ came with a heart towards redemption. The disposition of God's heart, the, the, the reasoning behind his action was that he would be uh, coming to redeem his people. So this is not just... God didn't just come to visit. This wasn't a God coming down. It's not, this isn't close encounters of the third kind where it's some chance meeting. God remembered the planet again. And then, you know, it was just Jesus was on a vacation or something. God had an extremely specific purpose in sending his son. And it is becoming more and more clear about that purpose teaches us about who God is and about who Jesus is. God wanted to redeem the world, not bring it uh, condemnation. And even though in Jesus' coming, he comes and brings his word, and it says that he has a fire to bring upon the earth, and he wishes that it was already kindled, um, which I believe is not just speaking about judgment, but also speaking upon about the fire of the Holy Spirit and how it purifies. Nevertheless, God does, when he comes, because of his holiness, he necessarily brings mercy and judgment every time. God does not suspend any of his attributes when he comes to his people. But this tells us, this part of the creed tells us that the primary motivation in God sending his son was for redemption and not condemnation. In John 3.16, arguably the most quoted verse in, in Western world, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son... That whoever believes in him, that is, whoever believes in the Son, not just in 
Not, not just whoever believes in a God, whoever believes in the Son should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. And this is where we, this is important for us to understand that before we look at the significance of the immaculate, uh, or of the virgin birth and the and uh, Emmanuel that is God with us, before we look at the significance of that, it's helpful for us to know what is the purpose of God's heart, even before we start talking about how that purpose begins to be unfolded. A few, focusing on a few elements of that phrase, he says, for the Nicene Creed says, for us, that is, God came, Jesus Christ came down from heaven for us. Um, this highlights the grand necessity of our need for God's intervention. We, our Old Testament uh, lesson this morning was from Isaiah 59, which covers uh, Isaiah's prophecy against the people of Israel and is applicable to all of the world, all of mankind, that we had completely gone astray and that all of the products of our um, behavior and of our labor, labor, it all was death. Um, we, we talked about in this phrase, in verse five, it says they hatch adder's eggs and adder is a serpent. And it says they weed, they weave spiders webs. So this is Isaiah saying that all of mankind, everything that mankind does is full of deceit and lies and traps for his fellow man. And we invent where the Bible says that man is an inventor of evil. And this, Isaiah makes no, uh, he makes no exceptions. He says they all have gone astray. Um, And then it turns and in this verse 11, therefore justice is far from us. Isaiah is prophesying against the people of Israel. And then he turns and begins to make a confession. And so he makes a confession and says, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We long for the light, but behold, but we behold darkness. That is, we look for God, but he's completely hidden from us. And this idea is, is the outworking of, of the point of this chapter, which is found in verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Um, this is this is what tells us of our need for a savior. We have our sins, various and multitudinous, have made a separation between us and God, and we could not bridge that that chasm. This this part of the Nicene Creed, however, tells us that God saw this problem, and so He sent His Son Jesus to the world. For what reason? For us, on our behalf, and for our salvation. He sent Jesus so that the world might be saved. And this teaches us to abandon all of our fears about God's heart, God's nature. It teaches us to escape the wrath of God by running to his son Jesus, and, and uh, as, as Paul says, to seek refuge in Christ, to escape the wrath to come. We, we've learned about God's holiness and his mercy. Um, we focused on this in the Christ in the Old Testament. If you remember um, the encounter with Moses in Exodus 34, it says, The Lord passed from before him and proclaimed. This is, this is Moses up on the, temp, uh, the temple mount, the mountain of, of God, where, uh, 
where there was this encounter between Moses and, and God in all of his holiness, and he proclaims the name of God. And names tell us about who a person is. Uh, my name is John Paul Weiss. Okay, there's three parts of that name, a first name, a middle name, and a last name. And my middle name, Paul, means gentle. Um, I would argue that I'm probably one of the most nice people when it comes to confrontation. I hate confrontation because my name's Paul. And my dad named me Paul because Paul's a good name in the Bible. Actually, he named me about um, after his brother that died uh, when he was a young boy. And um, but John, uh, my my the, my namesake, my dad's brother, my my uncle who I never met because he died before I was born. He was named John Paul after one of the popes. Um, so John John means uh, beloved of God, and then Paul means gentle. And so um, if you ask my wife or you ask any of my friends. I'm a very lovable, nice guy who doesn't really confront that much, um, which is partially a downside. But names tell you about a person. Um, we don't really talk about names because we're Americans, and we just, you know, we just pick names out of a book. We get we get Bible baby names, and we just like, you know, we flip a coin a few times, and that tells us a number out of a hundred, and and there it is. That's the kid's name. A name describes about a person. It, it tells you who a person is. And so when it says, when, when God is declaring his name, he says, he doesn't just say, I'm Yahweh, right? Most of us think he's going to proclaim the name of the Lord and he would just say, Y-W-H-W. That's not, that's not what happens. He describes his nature. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses hearing this says, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. This is a revelation for Moses. Moses is, had heard Yahweh say that I am, that is, you know, Yahweh had declared his name, but Moses gets this revelation of God's mercy and goodness, and he's undone. He bows his head toward the earth and worships, and he says, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses realized that the people of Israel that he was leading were rebellious and stiff-necked, and even though they had come out of Egypt, they hadn't really gotten the Egypt out of Israel. That is, they were still behaving and worshiping uh, and, and full of sin in such a way that they were still as if they were in Egypt. Even though they had left, they, they eventually after this, they, you know, he, he goes down and they've already set up a, an idol. And then the guy who made the idol, who's supposed to be the high priest, uh, or who later is the high priest, he makes an excuse and says that it just happened. And he, you know, he's lying about the fact that they made an idol. This is a stiff necked people. And Moses knows the answer. He says, we need you, God, to come and dwell in our midst because your presence will have a holiness effect on your people. But the problem is, in verse 
uh, seven. It says the Lord will by no means punish or uh, uh, will by no means clear the guilty. That is, God is holy and He is just, and He will bring uh, He will bring judgment upon those who deserve judgment. So the question is, how does this work out? Moses says, if I've found favor, which it appears that Moses has, he's, he's hearing God's name and yet his ears haven't been blown off. Uh, Moses is standing there and he's having this dialogue with God and he then makes a bold claim. You think that after hearing the name of the Lord, Moses would have had enough and he'd be fine. He says, not only do I want to hear your name, I want you to come and be in the midst of these people so that you can uh, take us as your inheritance. So the question is, how does God do that? How does he come in the midst of a holy uh, of, of an unholy people? And how does he restrain himself from, from breaking out in wrath against the people? Um, we're going to pause on that question, and we're going to pick it back up in a second. So the two things that we're here to talk about primarily, the virgin birth and the incarnation. Uh, the virgin birth is a core tenet of the Christian faith. It is the uh, central tenet that tells us of the miraculous nature of Jesus's arrival to this planet. We do not believe that Jesus just showed up and, um, you know, dropped out of a spaceship or something. There was a manner in which God entered the world. Um, we talked about last week how John the Baptist had made the declaration um, there goes the Lamb of God, uh, the one who is coming into the world. That is, he comes in to take away the sins of the world. So how did he come? The, the virgin birth tells us that Jesus was not the biological offspring of Joseph and or Mary, but rather that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That is, both the, uh, the sperm and the egg that were used in creating Jesus's frame, those were not tainted by um, human biological DNA. That is, that is, God didn't take a little bit of Mary and then purify it and then make it sinless and then uh, bring about a, a Holy Spirit action and then bring about Jesus. Both the, the sperm and the egg of Jesus that, that made Jesus, uh, they were completely from the Holy Spirit. It says that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and that he was the one who brought it about. And so when we say conceived by the Holy Spirit, this is fully God, fully man. God is doing a new creation. He's not doing a redemptive work on part of a fallen creation. Not yet. Jesus was not born in sin. And if he was partly uh, Mary's egg and, um, you know, God bringing a sperm and an egg together, taking some of Mary and taking some of Holy Spirit created uh, matter and bringing that together, um, that wouldn't have been okay. There are deep theological reasons for that, which we don't have time to talk about today. But nevertheless, let's look at what Luke, uh, our reading in Luke says. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. So this is a person who can live forever. He will reign forever. Every king that has existed in Israel has reigned for a time and then died. But the, but the angel Gabriel says he will reign over the throne of his father David forever, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. So he's not going to just sit on the throne. He also will lead the people. 
Mary says, how can this be since I am a, a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This, this word overshadow can be enriched to, you can understand it as will supersede you, will uh, transcend what is able to happen in you, um, and, and this will come about. And for that reason, that is, for the reason that the Holy Spirit will do this, because this is a miraculous thing, for that reason, he'll be called the Son of God. Um, some observations from this before uh, we, we don't have time to dwell on every particular part, but Mary had found favor with God. She had not earned it. It says, the, the angel Gabriel says that you have found favor with God. If, if not, uh, other times when angels have shown up and answered prayers, they have said things such as, because of your persistence, because of your prayers, God has seen your righteousness, or, or whatever. Mary had found favor with God. That is, she was trusting in God's promises, and she had the obedience of faith. This was not some sort of righteousness on her own, but rather righteousness in the faith of God's covenant promises to his people Israel. This also tells us that God alone is the one who brings about the unfolding of his plan of redemption. Mankind is encouraged by God to come alongside and have a part in it, but God himself is the, is the actor here. Um, something else this brings out is Jesus would have uh, a reign over the house of Jacob forever, and that his kingdom would have no end. We actually take that phrase right from this verse. And we say that in, in some of the creeds. And then finally, it says he, uh, in, in verse 35, for that reason, the holy, uh, the holy child shall be called the son of God. Without the virgin birth, Jesus is not the son of God. And Gabriel says that. So he would be called the son of God because of the Holy Spirit's activity. Now we're going to get to an H word. Uh, it's not hell. It's heresy. This is a, a not a not a word that you can use lightly. Um, this is not a word that you can just go around and say, "Well, you know, they were singing heretical songs because I didn't like the fact that they used, you know, jazz flute instead of, uh, you know, harp or something like that." You you can't just go around calling people heretics, and I don't intend to. Um, but you need to be clear that the virgin birth is not something that you can compromise, because if you do, everything in the gospel is unraveled. If you can't believe uh, the the work of uh, of God in sending Gabriel to announce to Mary, then you can't believe the scriptures. If one part of the scriptures are false, any part of the scriptures may be false. And um, if you concede any ground on this area, you lose the entire faith. Modern theologians and some liberal Protestant churches have begun to question the authority of the Scripture, which, um, if you're, if that's a new concept to you, the um, I did a series a while ago of six parts um, on the Reformation. One of the tenets of the Protestant Reformation was the authority of Scripture. That is, it is the things which are necessary for salvation are found in Scripture only and that the scripture is the word of God and is to be trusted, and it is inerrant. That is, the scriptures contain no errors in them. There is nothing false, or there is no falsehood in the scriptures. Um, what it doesn't mean is that we interpret it perfectly every time. 
However, it does mean that God, through the um, miracle of provisioning the writings of the New Testament and the Old Testament throughout the centuries of the church, their faithful teaching and practice throughout the years of of the existence of his covenants, those writings have come to us in an authoritative way. That is, they haven't made errors along the years in translating them or maintaining the documents. But these people in some of the, um, in the 1900s and, uh, and, and even earlier in that, than that in the higher critic movement began to question what if the, the writers of the Gospels had begun to bring about some of their own ideas. And they began to see the, the cultural relevance of the writers of the Gospel as being more important than the fact that the Holy Spirit breathed the Scriptures or that... Um, the idea that all scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, exhortation, and rebuke. And so they had begun to say, well, let's, you know, we need to understand the culture in which Paul wrote this book or else we can't understand the writing, which is true and valid for some degree. But they had begun to, to conjecture, well, what if the gospel writers actually had made some errors or fudged a little bit? so that, um, you know, they could persuade people. Um, some people in the emergent church have begun to do this again, and this is a culturally relevant issue for us today because I'm sure uh, um, some of you have probably heard or seen a video or have heard of a book or read a book by a guy that I'm about to mention named Mr. Rob Bell. Rob Bell is a, was a teacher up in Western Michigan who uh, wrote a number of books. Um, some of them are very good. Some of his teachings are very insightful, and they contain nuggets of re re revelation. But in my opinion, this kind of questioning of the authority of Scripture is leading down the path of heresy. And it's actually the case that after he came out with his latest book, his church basically dropped its membership by half, and he was forced to resign because of the scandal of Rob Bell's teaching moving further and further away from trusting in the scriptures and their authority. He says in his book, Velvet Elvis, on pages uh, 26 through 27, he asked the question, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus has a real earthly biological fa father named Larry, and archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the father followers of Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods had virgin births. So there were these two cults, uh, the Mithras cult and the Dionysian cult. We won't go into all of them, but they had a very Zeus and, Her, um, and Hercules-like stories that there was a son of the gods and that he had, that, you know, this birth had come about through a, um, through a virgin birth kind of idea. He then goes on to say that I affirm the historic Christian faith, which includes the virgin birth and the Trinity and the inspiration of the Bible and much more. But if the whole faith falls apart when we re-examine and rethink one spring, then it isn't then it wasn't that strong in the first place, was it? Um, this is this is a line of questioning that is filled with presuppositions that are 
false. He says, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof? Well, any proof that is presented is trusted or admitted into a court based on the accuracy and the validity of that type of proof. Um, they have this idea in removing an item from a crime scene that when that item gets removed, the detective seals it in a bag and then takes it to an officer who keeps all the evidence. And then once that officer has the 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 item, whether it's, you know, a knife or a gun from the crime scene or, you know, a garment with blood on it, whatever, that item then needs to be transported to the courthouse and back and forth between the district attorney's possession and the possession of the person who is, you know, keeping the evidence. And they have strict, such strict rules that if ever once an item is given to someone else and that, that person doesn't have the authority to have that item and it's not recorded in the chain of custody for that article or document or item, then that, that piece of evidence is inadmissible in court and the district attorney possibly has lost the case. So when Mr. Bell says, what if someone tomorrow digs up definitive proof, he's basically asserting that there could be some sort of archaeological proof that disproves the virgin birth tomorrow, and that that proof would have some sort of trust or authority or accuracy behind it. So what he's beginning to ask is, what if this it turns out to be false? And then the question is, he, he goes ahead and says that he affirms the authority of Scripture, but I don't think he really does, even though he says he does. He says, but if the whole faith falls apart when we re-examine and we rethink one spring. That is, Mr. Bell is beginning to assert our rethinking and our re-examining of core tenets of the Christian faith as being an appropriate thing. And he says that if we re-examine it and find it to be lacking, then the then the faith wasn't that strong. Um, this, in my opinion, is a very dangerous thing. And the creeds were written in such a way as to be to give the Christians a way to detect and to spot heresy. And because this is relevant um, to us today, because this guy is still out there teaching and doing uh, presentations, he's not a pastor anymore, he's still writing books, you need to be able to smell heresy when it comes about. And it, it's important for us to be able to do that. Paul, sense, Paul says that we, the righteous, have our senses trained to detect good and evil. That is, when, when this kind of stuff shows up, I don't want you to have any room in your uh, heart for doubt, but rather I want you to, as Paul says, have great confidence in the faith. If Christ was not divine, then the promises of God to Israel were left unfulfilled, and our God cannot be trusted. And if Jesus was not born of a virgin, then he came from Mary's line, was wholly corrupted and conceived in sin. And as David says in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David didn't have an adulterous set of parents. He's saying that his parents, uh, that their, their act of bringing about David that was done under the effect of the, the, the fallen state of man that is uh, original sin or, or total corruption. So if he's not God, he's a liar and completely not worthy to be trusted. So back to our question, if, 
if, uh, if God needs to be in the midst of his people, if he needs to atone for our theological sins and our sins of, of, of many different types, how can God be in the midst of his people? Well, the answer is found in the, the incarnation. Uh, God in, in the old covenant had established a means by which his people could come and present themselves by a mediator. And that mediator was known as the high priest. The high priest could come into to the presence of God and make a, um, a, an atonement, that is, a, a way of bringing God and his people to union. God is a holy God, and our sin and our rebellion, having been against his infinite holiness, incur upon us an infinite debt. And so the, the scriptures teach in the New Testament that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins because they were infinite, and that the remittance that was, was achieved by those was only a delay in time until the true sacrifice was, was to come. And so if we have an infinite debt, only someone with an infinite amount of resource and an infinite amount of worth could possibly pay that debt. Thankfully for us, God the Son had come and established, had having already established an eternal covenant with the Father, has come and become for us not only the high priest, but also the sacrifice. Hebrews 2, 10 through 12 says, For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. If you notice, we, we used that phrase back in the first part of this series. Continuing in verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through the death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, this, this proves why the questioning of the virgin birth, the questioning of God as Emmanuel with us. This can't be questioned or else we have no, at least according to this verse, we have no propitiation. We have no sacrifice that is applicable. If he's, if he's not infinitely holy, if, if Jesus is not infinitely worthy, if he doesn't have infinite resource to pay off our infinite debt, then we have no faithful high priest. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that is, um, turning God in a, in a favorable way toward us, <clears throat> to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Jesus was not only our high priest, but he also was our perfect spotless lamb, Remember when, when John the Baptist has that moment that we were talking about where he sees Jesus, God in the flesh, <clears throat> walking toward him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God 
That's talking about the sacrifice that God himself makes. Hebrews 9 says in verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, but by means, uh, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled per, uh, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, <clears throat> who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is what we are declaring when we are declaring the virgin birth and that Christ has come as Emmanuel. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're declaring that he was not only perfectly God, that is uh, infinitely worthy and, in, and having infinite resources, and therefore his sacrifice would be able to make God, propi- uh, would be able to make a propitiation for our sins. That is, his sacrifice would be counted as worthy to God because of its infinite purity and holiness and worth. And if we distort or waver in our understanding of the fact that God was brought about by the Holy Spirit, but, but we, uh, if we waver on that at all, um, then we lose his infinite worth. At the same time, if we waver on the fact that God uh, in the Son was fully man, then he cannot be a high priest for us because he's not like us. And so those two elements that God is both, that God the Son is both infinitely worthy, infinitely holy, and that he is fully man in coming and being born through Mary, um, those two elements, without either one of them, the Christian faith falls apart and we are left dead in our sins. Um, with that, we're going to close in prayer and then take communion. Father, we thank you for your infinitely worthy Son who now is seated on the throne, reigning uh, in the midst of his enemies, having sent the Holy Spirit to be God with us now. God, we, we ask you that we would have firm faith in the apostolic and orthodox uh, faith. That is, that we would have no room in our uh, heart for doubts, but that your spirit would communicate to us deep confidence of the faith that has been delivered to the saints. God, we ask that you would give us an answer for those who are struggling with confidence in your scriptures, that we would have boldness and that we would not waver. Lord, we ask you that not only would we be confident, but that you would provide uh, a deep, lasting communion as we meditate upon the simple truths of your word. We ask you that you would teach us how to communicate these things as they're found in the creed in simple ways so that everyone can hear about and know the work of your son and the grace and forgiveness that he offers. We ask you that we would be enriched in our faith by the Holy Spirit this week, that you would cause us to meditate upon the precious doctrines 
of the Christian faith and that we would see them and through seeing those doctrines, see and adore you and your son. In Jesus' name, amen.